For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day -day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. This specific story also discusses the sexual assault of a minor. Please take care while listening. The Alexanders, Father, Son and Sacrifice. The hour of killing had arrived. The girls had not expected it today, December 16, 1970, but they always knew that it would come. Every soul contains impurities, but especially those of women. They are inherently evil and desperately in need of moral cleansing. The only path to purity is through the process of being killed. Otherwise, they will never see heaven and it was the girl's most fervent wish to be close to God, hovering free of earthly filth. That's why 18-year-old Marina and her younger sister Petra did not run. Very calmly, they waited in their bedroom, listening to the harmonium through the wall. Their father was playing the instrument while chanting his prayers to Jesus. It was a miraculous moment, the music surging and swelling, scrubbing every taint from their souls. The harmonium muffled the sounds from the other bedroom, where their mother was already in the process of being purified. The girls waited for it to finish, and then heard the footsteps coming down the hall. Now, the prophet of God, their very own older brother, stood at their bedroom door. Sixteen years old and slathered in the blood of their mother, he looked his little sisters in the eye. The time had come, he said. The girls bowed their heads in prayer, and it began. There was plenty of work for a stonemason in Hamburg. During World War II, the Allies targeted the city for bombing precisely because its buildings were so incendiary. If the right type of bomb was dropped, and in sufficient number, the houses of Hamburg would become matchsticks. The goal was to bring Nazi Germany to its knees. Britain had been through the Blitz and knew how demoralizing it was to have your neighbors killed. And so, for the first time, the Allies planned to expand the borders of the wall. They planned to target civilians. For eight days and seven nights, bombers swept across the Hamburg sky, raining their payloads on the city. 
the Allies had given the campaign the name Operation Gomorrah, echoing the biblical city that was punished for its sins, God raining fire and brimstone down upon its people. But the fires of Hamburg were far greater than anything in the Bible. The incendiary bombs the Allies used created firestorms so powerful that children were swept off the ground like dried leaves and hurled into the blazing abyss. When the operation was over, almost 40,000 civilians were dead and a majority of the city's houses were destroyed. Even in the early 1950s, when Harald Alexander and his wife Dagmar arrived in the city, it was still in process of reconstruction. A dark-featured man with a messy flop of hair and a casual beard, Harald was kept busy as a stonemason. The work took him all over Hamburg, and everywhere he went, people were reconstructing their lives, rescuing what was lost from the long nightmare of Nazism and war. One of those people was an old man named George Ryle. He was the leader of a small, obscure but passionate group of Christian Gnostics called the Lorber Society. During the time of Hitler, the society had been suppressed, but it had never been fully eradicated, and now it was active again. Its ranks numbered just a few dozen people. Harald had always been a committed Christian, and he was drawn into the fold of Ryle's group. They would gather around the old man's harmonium and discuss the teachings of Jakob Lorber. Those teachings originated on a spring morning in 1840, when Jakob Lorber, then 40 years old, was lying in bed at home in Graz, Austria. Lorber had dedicated his life to music and had composed several works of chamber music in a frilly romantic style. But it was not in his chosen field that he would ultimately distinguish himself, for on this morning, out of nowhere, he heard a voice. Get up, it commanded. Take your pen and write. The voice was so forceful and so authoritative that Lorber immediately obeyed. He went over to the desk and took out a fresh sheet of paper and began writing down every word the voice spoke. For the next quarter century, until his death, Lorber would keep writing. He was not authoring the works himself. Someone else's voice was coursing through his pen. And soon he realized that that person was none other than Jesus Christ himself. Altogether, Jesus would compose 25 books through the pen of Jakob Lorber, amounting to over 10,000 pages. The project was nothing short of another gospel, the books of the Bible that related the life of Jesus. Only this time, the gospel was being authored by Jesus himself. It was an autobiography, a final testament that would complete the Bible and point the way forward for humanity. Soon, Lorber had acquired a small group of followers committed to elucidating this new gospel and spreading it to others. After Lorber's death, to the surprise of many, the voice of Jesus did not stop dictating. Instead, it transferred to a retired army officer. And when he died, another follower began hearing the voice as well. 
Throughout this long chain of writers, a bold new cosmological vision came into focus. According to The Voice, God uses all matter like a filter, a way to purify the unclean spirits with which we are born. When at last all is clean, Jesus will return and Judgment Day will commence. In the destruction of Hamburg and all the other horrors of the war, followers of Lorba, like the old man George Ryle, perceived signs of Christ's imminent return. After all, what could be more purifying than the fire and brimstone that had rained from the bombers up above? The stonemason Harold Alexander was thrilled by the intensity of these ideas. Christianity wasn't just an object of study anymore, archaic words and dusty books. Instead, it was a living story, its outcome still undecided, and he could play a pivotal role inside it. Under the influence of the Lorber Society, Harold came to look upon the world not as a series of random phenomena, but as a set of signs, secret messages from God that would lead us to redemption. Harold became the society's most passionate believer, always urging others to even greater extremes of self-denial and self-purification. There was something almost frightening in his dark eyes. They burned like coals and always flickered with a paranoid agitation. Harald seemed to see past the surface of things, into a grand destiny awaiting us all, if only we could make ourselves worthy. As a stonemason, he was rebuilding Hamburg. But as a member of the Lorber Society, he was rebuilding Jerusalem. When George Ryle, leader of the society, became sick, Harold stayed at his bedside and nursed him. But finally the old man succumbed and passed away. And when the society gathered to mourn him, Harold made a shocking announcement. In his final days, he said, Ryle had told him that he, Harold Alexander, was to take over as the leader of the society. He had bequeathed Harold his harmonium, with its accordion mechanism and row of yellowed keys, so that he might continue to play the wheezing hymns that purify our souls. His wife Dagmar was extremely proud to hear this news. She too was an intense believer, not only in the teachings of Lorba, but in the exceptional nature of her husband. At home, Dagmar and their youngest daughter Marina were absolutely subordinate to Harold's will. This was the natural way of things, for women were especially burdened with the taint of impurity, and so especially in need of the direction of a man. Only under Harold's guidance did they have any hope of redemption. But for all his zeal, Harold was not especially fit for leadership. The Lorber Society was organized around a series of texts, but Harald was more improvisational, reading the signs of the world himself and offering his own interpretations. Soon enough, the followers began to wander away, either rejoining their old churches or finding other ways to adhere to the teachings of Lorber. Harald found himself isolated, 
playing hymns on the old man's harmonium to an empty room, dust motes drifting through the air. But that was all right. In fact, that was as it should be. Increasingly, Herald's fanatical religious vision had narrowed and narrowed until it came to focus on his family. Others might reject his leadership, but at home, his will reigned supreme. He took this as a sign. Only in his own flesh and blood could he discover purity. People outside the family weren't just lost souls. They were the property of the devil. Now it was the awesome task of the Alexander family to lead the way to the Promised Land. In 1954, Dagmar gave birth to a son. They named him Frank, and when Harald set eyes on the boy, he knew at once that this was no ordinary child. No. Frank was nothing short of an envoy from Jesus Christ himself, a demigod miraculously birthed among mere mortals. From this day forward, Harold pronounced, Frank was the head of the family. Everything Frank said, no matter how extreme, no matter how bizarre, was to be obeyed without hesitation. The family must subordinate itself to the child's instruction for the baby's tiny tongue carried the golden word of God. Dagmar and their daughter Marina bowed their heads. The man of the house had spoken, and they were not worthy to question him. Instead, they reoriented themselves in a new direction, like flowers turning their heads to the sun. The baby crying in the cradle was now the centre of the world. Little Frank might be a prophet, but he was still a baby boy, one who required shaping into the optimal vessel for God's commands. And if truth be told, Frank had his imperfections. For one thing, he was born left-handed. As everyone knew, that was a sinister sign, ill-fitting an envoy of Christ. His mother Dagmar took to binding the child's left hand behind his back forcing him to become right-handed. But still worse, the boy developed a stutter, and his parents had to take him to a psychologist to rectify the problem. How could God's messenger speak in such painfully broken sentences? But despite these issues, Frank was still king. When Dagmar gave birth to twin girls, Sabine and Petra, they were also raised in the belief that their older brother was a prophet and that everyone outside the family was satanic. The Alexanders trusted no one and no one was worthy of them. As humanity's last hope for salvation, it was their radical responsibility to remain pure. That meant turning their backs on society and facing only each other. Like his father, Frank had a wild shock of hair, and like his father, his eyes were constantly peeled, the whites as bright as electric bulbs. But unlike Harold, who could only read and interpret the signs of the world, Frank could dictate them. He was not beholden to anyone's rules. He was the creator, 
the arbiter of all morality. That's why, when he hit puberty, the young prophet announced his desire to have sex. Granted, premarital sex and desire itself was widely considered sinful. But Frank declared otherwise. Roiling with the urges of a pubescent teen, he deemed it high time to lose his virginity. Yet, he couldn't have sex with a stranger. Everyone outside the family was the property of Satan, and mingling bodily fluids with a member of the public would lead to unavoidable contamination. His father, Harold, agreed that there was only one solution, and it was here in the comfort of their home. With his mind warped by his father's teachings, Frank forced himself on his older sister Marina when she was just 14 years old. She did not question the arrangement. If Frank said it was right, then it was sanctioned by God. Soon, though, Marina wasn't enough. Frank's appetite grew. He assaulted his mother Dagmar as well. Harold joined in too father and son forcing the women of the family to submit to the prophet's twisted carnal urges. According to Frank's proselytizing, these incestuous orgies celebrated the family's rejection of society. It affirmed their spiritual superiority. Even if Frank felt that the sex itself was degrading, father, son, mother, daughter debasing themselves by engaging in bodily sin it was a necessary evil, a way to expunge desire and purify his soul. And the women of the family knew that they had to accept their punishment. Through their suffering, they could bring themselves closer to Frank, to Harald, and to heaven. There were no secrets in the Alexander house. They were not ashamed of their actions. After all, they were endorsed by God. The little twins, Sabine and Petra, watched their father and brother assault their mother and sister again and again. Each sexual rampage was like a sermon, proclaiming Frank's righteous supremacy. But their lack of shame also meant a lack of discretion. At school, the twins told the other children about what they witnessed at home. Suddenly, rumours began to spread about wild, incestuous orgies, and word reached the police. Harald often felt himself observed. God's eye was always watching. But soon, he felt an extra pressure. He was being followed. He was being surveilled. The Hamburg police were building a case. Perhaps this had always been inevitable. The devil owned society, and so it was only natural that society would come for him and his family. But Harald would not let the devil prevail. His family was progressing towards absolute purity, and he would not let any dark power interfere. One day, Harald gathered the family together and said they must leave Hamburg at once. It wasn't safe here any longer. Instead, God had dictated that they should move to a place they'd never been, a place they knew nothing about, a place far away from home, the Canary Islands. 
Santa Cruz de Tenerife, the capital city of the island of Tenerife in the Canary Islands, was no stranger to secret societies. All across the small city, the influence of Freemasonry could be seen. Look up and study the details of the buildings and you find Masonic symbols everywhere. The all-seeing eye, the square and compass, the acacia tree. In fact, some people believe that the entire city was planned according to the laws of the secretive Freemasons. Draw a line between buildings with the most prominent symbols and it forms a five-pointed star. But despite being a stonemason, Harald Alexander belonged to a different secret society, one he had forged all by himself. When he and his family arrived in the city, they took an apartment on the first floor of a building downtown, on a street fittingly named Jesus de Nazareth. It might have been police surveillance that finally drove them from Germany, but they considered themselves exiles, persecuted for their righteousness. There was no place for them among regular civilians. To symbolize their rejection of Germany, the Alexanders gathered together all their passports and birth certificates and set them on fire. The apartment on Jesus de Nazareth became the church of their private religion. Harald and Frank had grown obsessed with the heart of Jesus, that symbol of ultimate purity. And now they decorated the apartment with as many icons as they could find. Frames and photos and clippings covered the walls, all devoted to the heart of Jesus. Meanwhile, among the things they brought with them from Hamburg was the old harmonium from the Lorber Society. Soon, its music haunted the building, that accordion wheeze seeping through the walls. Neighbours heard the Alexanders chanting and singing and praying for hours on end. This new family certainly was a little strange, but then, in the five-pointed star of the city, people were accustomed to religious eccentricity. On the other side of the wall, however, things were more nightmarish than anyone could have imagined. Here in the Canary Islands, the Alexanders were totally unfettered, free to explore their self-invented religion to its furthest extremes. The orgies were unabating. Frank's lust grew more aggressive and insatiable as Harald pressed the keys and the harmonium sang. And yet a problem remained. The women were still sinful. Frank could force himself on them as often as he wanted, but no amount of penance would make them pure enough. They would never be admitted to heaven. The men pondered the question of how to purify the women's souls. They prayed over it, agonized over it, and then suddenly, in a flash of divine inspiration, the answer came. The only connection the family maintained with the outside world was Sabine's job. She was one of the twins, the youngest member of the Alexander clan, and she became a maid for a professional named Dr. Walter Trenkler in the nearby city of La Laguna. Just 15 years old, Sabine worked hard for the doctor, cleaning his house and preparing his meals, and the money she earned helped sustain the family's obsessive quest for purity. One day in December of 1970, 
Sabine was cooking in the kitchen when the bell rang at the front door. Dr. Trenkler answered it and found a man and a teenage boy outside. The first thing the doctor noticed was that the man appeared to be covered in mud. Then he recognized their faces. It was Sabine's father, Harald, and the older brother, Frank. Dr. Trenkler went to the kitchen and told Sabine her family was waiting outside. The young girl wiped her hands on her apron and anxiously hurried to the door. The whole thing struck the doctor as strange. Sabine's family had never come to his house before. And why the dark blotches on their clothes, as if they'd been rolling in puddles of mud? Dr. Trenkler followed his maid to the door and eavesdropped on her conversation. What he heard made his head swim and the room begin to tilt. It was not just the words themselves, but the calm and direct and unashamed way that Harald uttered them. Sabine, dear, Harald said, we wanted you to know at once that Frank and I have just finished killing your mother and your sisters. Now the doctor realized that it wasn't mud on their clothes. It was blood and purple viscera. But instead of recoiling in fear or disgust, little Sabine took her father's hand and pressed it to her cheek. I'm sure you've done what you think is necessary, she said. Harald noticed the doctor standing there and looked him right in the eye, as if reporting the simplest news. Ah, he said, you've overheard. We've killed my wife and other daughters. It was the hour of killing. Never in all his years of practice had Dr. Trenkler been so afraid. He was standing in the presence of absolute maniacs, murderers. The neon whites in their eyes peeled back. The doctor bolted upstairs and slammed the door of his study, locked himself in and called the police. Meanwhile, Sabine obediently went with her father and brother. Their original plan had been to leave the Canary Islands. Still dimly aware of society's customs, they knew they would be arrested once the scene at the apartment was discovered, and so they considered going back to Germany. But then they realized they destroyed all their documents, so they returned to the apartment. Who knows what would have happened to Sabine, whether the hour of her killing had come at last as well, had police not been waiting at the apartment. The neighbors had heard terrible sounds through the walls. But the most uncanny thing, they said, was that all the while, these calm and soothing hymns had wheezed from the harmonium, as if this were just another Sunday morning in church. Even before hearing the details of the case, it was clear to everyone in the courtroom that the defendants were insane. These men had undertaken an obscure religious journey, and there was no coming back. With their wild hair and fanatical eyes, there was something almost medieval about them. Frank could hardly control himself anymore, constantly grimacing and convulsing, as if being stung by wasps. And in Harald's gaze, it was hard to find a soul, 
as if his skull had emptied out forever in that fateful hour on Jesus de Nazareth. It had commenced without warning. After lunch, the jury learned. Frank's mother Dagmar had gone to take a nap. She and Harald maintained separate beds in the same room, and Harald was already sleeping. After some time, Frank came into the room and sat on the edge of his father's bed, staring at Dagmar. Eventually, she felt the presence of those electric eyes and looked over at him. Like any other mother in the world, she smiled at her son. And somehow, that decided everything. Frank saw something cool and sarcastic in the smile. And it was not permitted for Dagmar or any other woman to smile at the envoy of Christ like that. Frank's rage suddenly combined with his righteous mission and boiled over. It was time to process the corrupt soul of this woman, refine it so that it might be admitted to heaven. The hour of killing was upon them. He grabbed a wooden clothes hanger and struck her on the head. But though the pain was excruciating, Dagmar did not resist. In fact, she turned over onto her stomach, relaxing her posture so that her son might kill her more easily. But Frank was not interested in ease. He took his time. He did not shoot her or cut her throat. While Harald watched approvingly from the other bed, Frank flogged her with every blunt object in sight, mashing his mother until she was unrecognizable pulp. Blood jetted onto the sheets and sprayed over the walls and soaked his clothes to the skin. Only by submitting to his will and passing through this process could Dagmar's soul be purified. It took an hour and then her soul fluttered up to heaven. Meanwhile, his sisters Marina and Petra sat in their room, charged with anticipation. The thought of escape never occurred to them. They simply waited their turn. Then the steps came down the hall, and Frank, the messenger of Christ himself, stood at their door, dripping with blood. It was time, he said, and then pounced. The blows rained down like fire and brimstone, snapping their bones and pulverizing their faces. But when the women were dead, it was still unfinished. They were still not purified. Just look at their bodies, all weighed down with disgusting female parts. Frank retrieved a pair of pruning shears and began fixing the bodies. He cut off their nipples and gouged out their vaginas and hung the parts from string around the house. As the harmonium wheezed on, he slathered the ceilings and walls with blood. Already, those walls were covered with images depicting the heart of Jesus Christ, and now Frank made his own icon. He carved out his mother's heart, then wrapped it with a cord and nailed it to the wall. The hour of killing was complete.
At first, the jury sentenced the men to death. It was the most horrifying crime ever committed in Santa Cruz de Tenerife. But upon further review, it was judged the men could not be held responsible. Harald was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and if anything, his son Frank was even more insane. His entire life had been spent in the belief that he was the messenger of God and that everyone outside the family was satanic. Even the cold analysis of the trial had done nothing to shake the family's conviction. Despite everything, the surviving sister Sabine did not repudiate her father and brother. Instead, now that she would be deprived of their protection and authority, she asked to be sent to a convent so that she might be sequestered forever from the impurities of society. Harold and Frank were sent to a monastic seclusion of their own. Condemned to spend the rest of their lives in a psychiatric ward in Madrid, for two decades, they were deemed too dangerous for release, still gripped by religious mania. And then, one day in 1990, the hospital staff went searching for them, but found nothing. Somehow, the father and the son had disappeared like holy ghosts. They were never recovered and never heard from again. Somewhere out there, the prophets stalk the landscape, and who knows whose hour is next. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.